Hello and welcome to Eve Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we've seen All of Us Strangers. You've already seen this. I saw it when the London Film Festival did a tour of part of the programme uh, and it played at the Mac. Yeah. Uh, so the film came out uh, in the summer in film festivals. It's been doing the rounds and it's now having a wide release. Yes. Um, first time I've seen it, I was really looking forward to it. The trailer looked wonderful. What I would say straight away is it's almost a spoiler to actually say what the film is kind of fundamentally about because the trailer doesn't really reveal it. So we're spoiling. So we're spoiling. I'd say before we spoil it, I would really recommend you see it, right? And I would recommend seeing it knowing as little as I did, mm. which is, like, even from the trailer, the film isn't... It is kind of hiding the way it's telling its story or mm. the kind of story it's telling because it looks like such a straightforward uh, romance story mm. from the trailer. And it's about a kind of... It's about a guy's isolation and a guy's history and a developing relationship with another man. Mm. And that's all there. But also, and here comes the spoiler... It's a ghost story, or at least it's it's a kind of ghost story, but there's also um, a, a number of ways in which you can interpret the reality of what's going on. And I think the film's quite deliberate about inviting that ambiguity, because it could be that the people with whom he's spending his time are real ghosts, quote-unquote, you know, like it's really supernatural, or it could be that it's all in his head... It could be some combination of the two, right? Well, yes. I understood it to be about the ghosts that we all carry in us. Mm. Yeah. Our, exactly. Our histories. Um, our unresolved issues, you know, with family and time and place and conventions and, you know, the regrets that we all have about kind of unresolved uh, issues. Um and also, I suppose, kind of a longing to be loved or to be reassured about being loved. And Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, Do you remember what I was saying the other day about Argyle? Which is that if you let a lot of things go, you'll have a much better time. Mm. You know, And I was kind of saying that I think people taking the film too seriously in some ways or kind of asking questions about what, it's, what the reality is might be kind of ruining the experience. I kind of feel the same way about this. So where the film is at its best for me, is when it is at its freest in terms of it's not inviting you to ask what is really happening, quote-unquote. You know, it's about the feeling of the yes, moment. So when completely. he, So when Andrew Scott, uh, who plays Adam, the main character, when he's with his parents, who are, you know, his age, because they died when he was a youngster, but he's still seeing them and talking to them and so mm. on, and he kind of, he visits them, um, at their home, and there's a combination of memory, you know, of what they looked like and the house they lived in and what that all looked like, with the idea that they are also present now. So he mm. comes out to his mother, and his mother is asking questions, and she, and you know, it's she's she's responding not as though he's you know twelve years old as he was when they died, but as an adult now, you know. So like the kind of it's not placing itself in the past. It's kind of bringing the parents think, into the modern day. When, but it's also placing them in the past because the mother's attitudes yeah. are all the attitudes of 1987. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, what I'm saying is when the film is combining all of this so freely, it's really remarkable. And you, and, and you can 
if you want, ask questions of it. But I didn't, you know, I was with it. It was contradictory and it was interesting and it was full of feeling. And throughout most of the film, I had such a positive, warm feeling to all of this. Mm. I thought, wow, this is really remarkable to do this. And it's amazing how well it gets away with some of what it's doing Mm. in that respect. And I think that towards the end of the film, it starts inviting you or or almost requiring you to ask more serious questions about the quote-unquote reality of what it's showing you. And that to me is when it was at its weakest. And so it's funny that throughout the film I had such a positive feeling towards everything that was going on. I thought, God, this is remarkable. And almost immediately upon leaving the cinema, I felt much more mixed about the whole experience. That's interesting because... I I don't. I mean, the first time I saw it, I was in floods throughout. Mm. Like, you know, I completely kind of identify. I mean, I think it's a universal thing, but with a particular resonance to gay men of a particular age, actually. Though I've been really befuddled by some people who are almost showing off their dislike for the film. And I just can't imagine that, really. Uh... And I don't know if it's just posturing or a reaction to, you know, the the great press that the, f- the film has received. It's kind of received like rave reviews. Mm. But, you know, this feeling of of regret, of sadness, of unresolved issues with parents and with your own past, things you could have done better, things that you could have been resolved. Mm. I do think that at least for my generation of gay men, a certain kind of loneliness is built in. Mm. Yes. I mean, just because the place is so homophobic, the culture was so violently homophobic, right? And you get that in this film. He tells of, you know, kind of being bullied and so on. And the father knowing that he was kind of being bullied and saying, well, I would probably have bullied you too, mm-hmm. right? So, so, so what I think of as this inbuilt loneliness is that whatever you're suffering... You can't talk to anyone about it. Mm. You, know, you have to live, live it through on your own, right? Yeah. You know. So, and I think the film captures that, yeah, kind of in all kinds of ways. And then I think for me, the ending that you know, or the last bit, which you felt less comfortable with, for me is absolutely essential, and it's kind of almost, you know, I mean, I think the film is great. I think it's a masterpiece. I think part of what makes it a masterpiece is that end, you know, and it's not, I mean, so, so reality does intrude uh, a bit, but I think, you know, throughout the film, you've been concerned with his resolutions, with his past, Mm. with his parents, with whether he was loved, with, you know, him needing their love and needing to feel that they loved him, which in fact all of the characters feel they need. And at the end, kind of what it brings is, you know, you've been so concerned with yourself, but what about the other, yeah, what about the people around you? Yeah, he's been completely oblivious to the other man's needs. Harry. Yeah, to his loneliness, to his kind of... um Abandon, yeah, he says something like, uh, you know, there's a line where he says, there's, sometimes you don't care about your future, you don't think you have a future, or you don't care whether 
what happens or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so the sense of, you know, being there for others, being responsible for others, others being kind of, you know, in a similar situation, but maybe more vulnerable than you because they're younger or, yeah, uh, or, the, you know, or because they're more in a drug culture, which is kind of a feature, you know, of uh, uh, a certain aspect of gay life anyway. Um, yeah, so it brings this thing back to him uh, and his responsibility and his nurturing. And of course, he's too late, right? Like, you know, so so there's a tragic dimension, but it's almost like, you know, the sense of at least helping through a certain kind of passage, which might only be in memory, yeah, kind of. Hmm. But it brings up the question of the other, yeah. Yeah. So I like that very much. And I found it so moving. I could tell you were moved. Yeah. Um, it was interesting. And I, and I felt moved too, although certainly not to the same extent. And... I, I did find my feelings were kind of contradictory because at the same time I was feeling moved by the genuine feeling of what was mm. going on in these scenes. And at the same time, I had a certain distance going, what is the truth of this? Mm. Quotes. Um, but only to a certain extent. And I found myself very, I found myself most moved, funnily enough, by the scene where he says goodbye to his parents, but not actually I wasn't at my most moved in that scene. It was after it finished and he was on the train and in the lift home. I felt tears coming to my eyes. Like, mm. I, I don't know what it was about the, the ending of that scene or it kind of the, the emotion continued to build up somehow after the scene had finished. Um, so I did find it moving, you know, and I do think it's really, it, it, the film looks so beautiful. It's graded and shot so beautifully. It, the, the way light kind of pours in to the flat and... And, and it rendered so rich. Mm. And, you know, I mean, the, the, those shots at the start of the, such a deep blue sky that you see. And then when he's, you know, the two of them are in bed together and you've got this kind of like sun sunset type light you know, pouring mm. on their face. It's just, it's astonishing to look at. Really, really amazing. I think it's a real masterpiece because the way that it moves through, I don't know, states of consciousness or you know, what could be external reality, what could be, you know, a conversation with the past, like you said, what could be a ghost story, but in a way where it doesn't matter, where like the, you know, the focus is really on kind of, you know, evoking a certain kind of feeling, mm. yeah, and a certain kind of struggle to to resolve the past, yeah, to or not to resolve it, but, you know, to kind of have a conversation with it, yeah, with who you were, Mm. what your parents were, what they would think of you now, you know. Um, there's also a line where he's now older than his father, right? Yeah, so kind of these things that you might hold them responsible for, you know, uh, or blame them for. But here, you know, this is your situation now, and you're much older and kind of, you know, in some ways you're in worse shape, yeah? yeah. <laughs> or you're making more mistakes or, you know. So I really kind of... Yeah, I, I, I just, you know, the way that it weaves through, um, the way that music is deployed, um, the way that that sense of it, not alienation, you know, it's loneliness, so it's not... Yeah, it's isolation. It's Yeah, it's kind of... I mean, uh, the idea from like, the start of the film in that huge tower block 
and it's just him and Harry living in two separate places. So you know, it's you, you get a sense of isolation right at the start of just him on his own. But then it's the it's the thing about the uh, the fire alarm going off, mm. the building being evacuated. But he's the only one evacuating, mm. and that's such a weird thing to look at. It's such a weird image and a weird feeling. Mm. You go all of a sudden, what's going on here? And then you get this dialogue that explains, you know, we're the only two people in this building, and so it made clear to the audience that that's why no one else is leaving the building. Mm. But you know, it's it's um that's only explaining, you know, what the reality of you've got this extremely weird image of a building that you thought you assumed would be full of people evacuating and there's no one it's just you and that feeling of isolation that that you know in the middle of a city in the middle of a giant building that's got you know it's full of flats you're the only one there i loved all of that um but also the film kind of creates these parallels you right so uh his parents are in 1987 and have 1987 attitudes mm -hmm. and so on. The Paul Mescal character, you know, who was meant to be 20 years younger, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, and they have this whole discussion about whether, whether they consider themselves queer or gay. And, you know, queer for one generation has connotations. Gay for another generation has other connotations. But what was interesting was that the younger man also felt that even though he was out to his parents and his family and they'd been accepting and so on, that nonetheless he was edged out of the family. Yeah, that yes. kind of, yeah. you know, uh, and not out of any meanness or anything, but just, you know, his brothers get married, they have children, they have kind of like a more natural fit. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, yeah, he doesn't kind of fit into, you know, that kind of um, discussion, really, or 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 structure or yeah so there's this unconscious kind of edging out mm -hmm. uh even yeah when there is you know a coming out and 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 an acceptance um so this loneliness that the characters share is not like an individual failure right or you know kind of an inability to connect it's really the result of kind of all of these social structures at play right yeah. um i'm sure as well as kind of you know individual uh, uh, responses to them um, but I thought that was like so beautifully handled it had such resonance for me yes um, I can imagine I, it you know I've got so many sort of older gay friends online through you basically, uh -huh. that you know so many of the conversations in this film um, so evoked the kind of things that you guys talk mm. about and the way you remember your mm. histories and so on and you talk about having been having grown up in the past and your experiences and um and it felt, in fact, incredibly honest. And you know, it could have, it could have got to sort of, it, it could have had like a, an overly intellectual sort of thing of like, like having a debate almost mm. in the film about one thing versus the other. But it doesn't, it doesn't do that. And I'm thinking particularly about the, the scene in which, um, Adam comes out to his mother, mm. you know, which we've mentioned, and how she has these certain attitudes. But it's not, it's not like a dialectic. You know, it's not like I think one thing and I think the other and let's have a discussion. What she thinks is contradictory, you know, so she she cares for him. She's kind of disappointed in him. She worries for him. She has a certain homophobia. For sure. You know, and and all these things kind of kind of play together. And and it's in some ways they complement each other. In some ways they're contradictory with each other. And it just feels like such a natural scene, you know, Um I, I mean, I thought that was such a, such a remarkable scene because it's like I said, it's not it's not the film hosting a debate; mm. it's the film expressing the feelings of a character. Mm. Um, 
and that's where also I start to you know you kind of question um, how much of this is kind of in Adam's imagination, or how much of it is kind of real and external to him. Because what's interesting is that he doesn't always get answers that he wants from his parents. You know yes. what I mean? Just like he would, you or you could imagine that he would, if it's just about fantasy and about him imagining reconciliation and and openness and so on. You know, but he doesn't always get what he wants, and you can like so much of what the mother's response is is not the ideal response mm. that you would want. And that's no, it really is the response of that period. I mean. I think it's kind of uh, solved a little bit because it's clear she loves her son, mm. right? But it's also clear that she's got all of the prejudices of 1987, which, you know, were even worse prejudices than in 1977, right? Because, you know, that was the era of AIDS. And, mm-hmm. you know, I thought there was this moment kind of slightly, again, sad, but also a little bit chilling when, you know, she makes his favorite dish. I forget what it is, flapjacks or something. Mm. And then, you know, she says, take them with you because I won't be eating them. Yes. Right? It's almost like sharing food with him. Yeah, it's like contaminated, possibly AIDS. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. I mean, I didn't take the line specifically in that way, although I think you certainly could. I took it as it, she's just learned this information that she's not thoroughly happy with. And what was a lovely gesture to her son becomes a dismissive. You know, I don't want this anymore. It could be that way, but I read it, you know. Yeah. Because she does kind of bring up AIDS, right? Um, And it was, you know, at its peak then. And, you know, Section 28 and all the advertisements on the tube, uh, you know. And and people were also enormously misinformed and didn't know. Like that that famous thing about Princess Diana shaking hands with HIV positive people. You you can touch someone who has HIV and not catch it. That's right. People didn't know. know. No. And, and, you know, people were dying like fleas. So um, there was no combination therapy. There was nothing, Mm. you know, to to help. So I read it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Fair Uh, enough. I found the Paul Mescal character so touching. I mean... you know, you the shirt that he's wearing, which is so tacky. Yeah, mm. like, you know, it reminds me a little bit of those velvet paintings, <laughs> those uh, that people used to put on their walls, uh, or you know, a certain type of, of person. Um, yeah, so uh, it's a really kind of tacky T-shirt with a deer in the forest, and mm. but a kind of slightly glittery and so on. You know, so. To me, it had like these connotations of like, um, you know, a, a kind of a low class person, mm. right? Though, of course, that was contradicted a little bit because, you know, he was then reading Walton, right? He was reading yeah. Thoreau in another scene and he lives in this place. But, yeah, kind of, you know, the clothing and so on to me had kind of, you know, particular connotations. Mm. I could be wrong. Maybe it's a really famous designer that, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that I just don't know. Yeah. Um, but of course, the thing is, he he also lived in this place. You know, this kind of reveal at the end yes. is that he has been dead the whole time, and that the relationship that we see develop with uh, Adam is the relationship of a ghost with him. You know, well, is, well, is that line about having having closed the door on him, and that was it? So the, the implication being, we never met. I'm I, I'm I'm a little bit confused about that because, you know, I do think that the 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 trip to the Royal Box Hall Tavern, mm. to me, seemed real. I, just, I, 
I think the film's implication is that none of that happened. He closed the door on him and they never made this connection. Um, well, um, and that's why he's been dead for days. I mean, there's the thing, you know, he goes to his flat and he sees the empty bottle, which is the bottle that he brought that night. The implication being he finished it off that night. He overdosed um, probably, drugs. You might be right, yes. Um, I think that's what the film is reasonably clearly saying, um, which I suppose is, is one of the things that I found ultimately disappointing or off-putting about the end because um, this this relationship that we've seen develop was the one thing that you kind of really relied on being real in the film, you know? Mm. Like, all of these kind of imaginative, you know, kind of flights of fancy or dreams or hallucinations or whatever they were with the parents were clearly, you know, of that nature. But you came back to the relationship with Harry and it seemed real. Yeah. And the film removes that from you at the end. That wasn't I... even... well. I mean, again, if he's a ghost and ghosts exist in the reality of this film, then it was real, but in a different way than we thought. I, I, I'll have to look at the film again because, you know, um, my impression was that they did have the one date. Yeah. Hmm. Um, you know, how that ties in with the bottle at the door, I'm not sure at the moment. But that, you know, my reading of the film having seen it twice, was that both times, you know, that the Royal Valhall Tavern happened in the real world, and which, which you know, kind of makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the conversations about the drugs, the difference in the drugs that they were taking, you know, the kind of the being ill, the sharing of the being scared, uh, you know. Um, so, I mean, obviously, finding the bottle at the door then is a thing, right? Because that is the bottle that was introduced at the beginning, you know, but kind of there's nothing to indicate that that bottle couldn't have been drunk or whatever at a different date, at a different time. Of course. I think the, the but film... Doesn't it also true that he never changes his clothes? That's why you're picking up on that shirt. And the, I think the, the idea might, might be, you know, this kind of... These, he dies and he, he is at his last moment in kind of isolation. But, you know, he never... I mean, it, it wouldn't be... Totally true. I think the parents are always in different clothes, so there's that. But that's the way I, the way I took um, Harry, at least. Yeah. But I... then the other thing is, you do still get a kind of well, it's a bittersweet ending. But there's some beauty to it with this thing of going to bed with the ghost and lying together and fading into this dot, which becomes a star in the sky, and we see lots of others. And there's a kind of combination of a feeling of isolation just mm. being a tiny little dot in the sky, but there are many others around. So you're kind of, like everyone's isolated, but all together, you know, mm. you, do you know what I mean? Mm. It's kind of, it's an int- it's a really interesting um, image um, to finish the film on. I loved um, Andrew Scott. Um, just like his face, yeah, like, uh, you know, when he would get emotional, it's so interesting because it's almost like he doesn't do anything except like the face um, transforms, yeah? So it gets red or, you know, the eyes get moist or something, yeah? Mm. So, yeah, interesting, for example, in, in, in contrast to Bradley Cooper in Maestro, <laughs> where you're having all these flutterings and gestures and eye movements and voice changes and, yeah, mm. he kind of doesn't seem to do anything except you feel like kind of you know, the channel of emotion in his face. Yeah, it's kind mm. of... And that's, like, uh, you know, through, through tiny gradations of, you know, mm. uh, the face be- begins to be a little bit red or 
the eyes begin to get a little bit moist. Yeah, I thought I was mm. so moved by his performance, really. Yeah, he's really remarkable. And the same thing goes for Paul Mescal. Oh, Paul Mescal well. is wonderful. There's, there's that wonderful shot where I think it's where he's talking about um, how his parents died and the experience of you know looking for the eye on the ground and stuff. And it's kind of it's it's sad and it's funny and all the rest. Um, and Paul Mescal's eyes are just welling up, you know, and they're red and mm. and, and he just. He exudes so much sympathy, mm. you know. I think all of them were actually because I think Claire Foy is fantastic, and Jamie Bell, whom I normally don't like, I think is fantastic in this. I think the whole introduction, where you you know, you think it might be Andrew Scott cruising, yes, you know, somebody else on the heath, and he and looks it's, it's the mustache. Yeah, he looks <laughs> like you know. Uh, uh, a clone of, well, maybe the previous era to that one, and then you you know you realize it's a father, and you really get a sense of uh, low middle class kind of uh, attitudes of the era, and then there's that moment where he says I love you son at the end, and and that again is one of those moments where, you know, kind of, it's just the eyes welling up and mm-hmm. yeah kind of he's not doing anything except kind of giving the impression of being. And I found that really beautiful. Yes. Although I'd say the line I liked the most from him in that respect was when he says, um, I'm sorry I never came in your room. So yeah, you yeah. Crying, you know, yeah. Which is a line from the trailer, in fact. And that was lovely. It works so beautifully. And that's when, you know, they're in the middle of the scene where Adam has come out to his mother and his mother has informed his father that he's gay. And so now they're having their first discussion about him being gay and the childhood memories and so on. And it's a conversation which is it's similar to the... So the one with the mother, it's kind of contradictory and it's open and it moves naturally, um, and it's funny at points. You know, mm. they remember like they, I mean, I really love the line where he says, "I have good memories too." Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Like great, I, of course he does. He would, you know, he loved his parents still, and they had a good time. It's not like the fact that he was, uh, you know, closeted and bullied and all this, even by his parents to some extent. Um, not bullied by his dad, but you know, he didn't have an open relationship with him. Mm. Um, is like not the defining feature of his childhood, and he mm. remember nice things as well, and and it just builds so beautifully and naturally to the point where the father slightly breaks down and then mm. says, you know, um, says, "I'm sorry, I never came to your room when you were crying." It's just beautiful. Mm. There's also an interesting line from the, from the mother um, when when he comes out to her, um, where she says. You don't look gay, or something, something yes. along those lines. <laughs> and you know, and again, that just like it's a funny line, and people in the audience laughed. But it it, it connotes this whole idea of of what a gay person looks like, how they act, and that they don't have to be, yeah. you know, the stereotype or camp or whatever, um, which obviously they can be. Um, but you know, but I, I mean, her idea is are you being served? Basically. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. And um, but and, and the film as you sort of suggested, also to some extent playing on that with those opening images of what looks like um, uh, cruising. Mm. Um, you know, it's it, the film is definitely inviting you to, to see it that way until it's revealed that it's not. Mm. Um, it's interesting. I also want to think about the sound a little bit and it actually really reminded me at points of the zone of interest. Um, yes. Because there's this thing about how quiet the building is and Harry says... You know, he hates how silent it is. In fact, he stops conversation at one point to point out that there's silence. And he says, I have this white noise machine because I can't stand it. And I was talking to my brother just recently about 
the zone of interest. And he had a really interesting take on the end of it. Um, so this is, I suppose, a minor spoiler for the zone of interest. But, you know, um, so there's that thing about right at the very end of the zone of interest, uh, Rudolf Hoss uh, effectively imagines the future, the legacy of Auschwitz. And then, and he retches. And then you come back to him and he has that kind of thousand yard stare sort of through the camera. Um, and what my brother pointed out was that there's no sound at that point. It drops out. And we were talking about in the podcast how there's that underlying sound throughout the zone of interest of of the sound of Auschwitz and the, and the constant constant noise. And you only get silence when they're not in Auschwitz. Um, and, you know, I didn't really know how to take the end. My brother had this really interesting read on it, which is that that sound keeps everything from coming in, like mentally, mm. you know, and, and the moment at which there is finally silence in the film is in that in those corridors when there's no one around, there's no noise, there's absolutely nothing. And mm. that's when all of a sudden the reality and the, the legacy, you know, all that kind of idea of what of what he's doing and what they're doing floods in. Mm. And that's why he has this physical reaction to it, you know. And I thought that's so interesting. And because it really made me think, like, there's so often a similar kind of low-lying sound going on under this, although it's for much different kind of purposes. But it, I really noticed when um, they're first um, together in the flat and they're first making out, and there is, I can't remember what kind of sound it is, but it's just, it's like a hum maybe. Mm. And it drops out conspicuously. Then Paul Mescal says, how about I kiss you? Mm. And then you go into this beautiful scene um, with the cameras kind of panning up and down their bodies. And like the the, you know, so it's not it's not the same thing in terms of like things rush in and overwhelm you, but the sound dropping out, so intensifies that moment. You know, yeah, it's so important to it. I thought that there was a little bit that also with the conversation with the father, the sound seemed to drop off. Oh uh, yeah, I think you may be right. Yeah, maybe yeah. Um, whereas like in the lift, on the street, it like. You do get like I don't know, industrial sounds or sounds of the night, or it is kind of busy with sound in the background somehow. Yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe so, that's a similar kind of thing, like yeah. a, that kind of con- like continuous sound. Yeah, it does have the thing stopping things. That's certainly the implication you get from Harry's take on it. Mm. You know, he doesn't like the lack of noise, and it, there's a sense in which he, you know, I can't be alone with my own thoughts, my own isolation. Mm. You know. Um, it's not something you get from Andrew Scott, but it's, it's certainly it's certainly pointed out from Harry. Um, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was, I mean, I thought the sound design generally was was it really was striking. It's so rich and flow, and and actually the I was thinking about flow as well, in terms of the structure of the film because, and I'm not necessarily seeing like talking about overall structure, but th- there are times when I'm watching it going, how did we get here? You know, like mm. there's such a freedom with which the film moves from scene to scene i can't i couldn't i can't tell you that i remember what a transition in the film looks like mm. you know you just wind up in places yes. you wind up somewhere else you know yeah it's, it's remarkable actually how 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 it flows from scene to scene yeah i think i mean clearly you know memory the unconscious i mean i think a large kind of motivator is the protagonist is writing a screenplay based on 1987 called 1987 which involves his family somehow. Yeah, so that is there 
not as a motor, but almost as a background rationale. Yeah, that kind of, mm. you know, so, so you know, that is an, an all-around kind of motivator maybe to him going into his mind, him going into his past. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so yeah. Um, so that freedom that you're talking about, the movement from one thing to another, I kind of, I didn't even look for a motivator. I look at, you just let yourself go with it. Yeah, well, like, so yeah, it's not, it's not about like looking for a motivator, but it's just, it's, it's, it's noticing that you're in a scene and going, wait, how did I even get here? Mm. Like, I remember, you know, there's a thing in Inception about how in a dream, you always wind up in the middle of the dream. You can't remember how you got to mm. it. And and then that's so often actually how things in Inception work. And, mm. you know, one of the things about, we just, you know, oh, we came through the, oh, no, we, we actually don't remember how a scene started. Mm. But that's, and I suppose that's true. That's probably true of a lot of films, really. You know, you think about how a scene started, you probably can't. But there's something of that... Of course it's true of all films. Yeah. I but mean... I really noticed that here, you know. I suppose it's probably also because the film was um, engaging with, a type of storytelling that I hadn't imagined it would. So like I say, from the trailer, from what I knew, or from what I felt I'd you know, been told, um, there was no indication that this would be anything other than a perfectly ordinary film about real people in real life doing mm. real things. And the fact that it is clearly doing something different from a pretty early point um, maybe encouraged me to, to notice um, how things were odd in other ways. I thought it was interesting how similar it is to um what's the other film with Paul Mescal about After Sun? The, After Sun. Which I haven't seen. Ah, yeah. Okay, well in that case we won't discuss it. But, say what you want. Well, I thought it was similar in After Sun because, you know, there is that flight of consciousness of the past, of, you know, what happened to characters, of, you know, speaking to the past, if not to ghosts. Yeah. It's also a kind of a non traditional narrative. Yeah, it is kind of, um, I suppose, quite arty in construction. Mm. Uh, so it makes, it asks of the audience to give themselves to to that. Yeah, kind of, it's not going to follow traditional expectations of scene construction or mm. kind of unity of time, space action. Yeah. Right, so um, that's obviously part of what makes it kind of innovative and great. But actually, I thought it's interesting that it has that in common with Charlotte Church. Is it Charlotte Church? Uh, no, Charlotte Church is a Charlotte singer. Croft. Charlotte Wells. Wells. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> so, neither. Yeah. So Charlotte Wells is After Sun, which I th I think is also like a truly great film. Um, let's let's talk about that thing just quickly about you know you were mentioning at the start people kind of posturing against this film. Yes. Um, you know, when you said that, I was immediately reminded of Call Me By Your Name, which I think, do you see a similarity in the way people oh, are yes. taking I mean, against it? Yes, I mean, I do think, I, I mean, I, you know, I do think that people took against Call Me By Your Name in the most unreasonable ways, really, um, in ways that I don't understand and that actually I kind of, I, I kind of don't respect, really. All these people kind of, making fun of uh, Timothy Chalamet, mm. who I think is fantastic in that movie, and who's proved to be so good in so many different things since, mm. right? Um, and then you think, oh, who the fuck are you, really, to, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, you know? And on the other hand, you think, oh, well, kind of, you know, it might make their little egos... Well, there was a, a class element to it, right? And there is also a class element. There is kind of, you know, a resentment of what is perceived 
to be uh, Chalamet's middle, upper middle class background, his uh, 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 mixed parentage, his arty bohemian, you know, desires. But the uh, film setting and all that was, you know, it, it was it was set in kind of upper middle class. These people with like this wonderful home in Italy and so on. Well, that's that's something. Yeah, were... so that that is also uh, true. I think there. Well, there are two. I mean, some people who hated hated it for the depiction of the sexuality, mm-hmm. yeah, or the lack of a depiction of it. Other people hated it because uh, Chalamet in the film speaks five languages, has wonderful parents, mm-hmm. and you know, which again, kind of. You know, get over it. I mean, really, I, I, I think it's a, it's a kind of a British disease. Mm. You know, that kind of and and, <laughs> and a dehumanizing thing, really, which I think people must stop. I mean, one thing is to offer a class analysis, of course, yeah. But another thing is this knee-jerk despising of people that is so dehumanizing mm. of of those people, right? And and I really kind of. Um, despise it with the full force of the term i do despise it um so it's not just that it makes me uncomfortable whatever i hate them for doing it when we saw the whole i think it doesn't speak very highly of them yeah as people when we saw the holdovers the other day um you said it's a film about how rich people can have problems too and and well (laughs) yeah kind of that is that is also true, but I don't think I'm doing the same thing. No? Uh, no. I don't think it's kind of like a knee-jerk reaction against uh, rich people, crying out loud. Uh, but I do think that there is, you know, uh, um, I mean, about the holdovers, I do think that there is something kind of very discomforting, you know, to kind of be focusing on the problems of young people and to be focusing on the most privileged people in society, really. Mm. Um but I think I, that's I, different. I think that is a class analysis as opposed to a knee-jerk response. I hate this rich kid. Because actually, that was not what the conversation was about. No, no. I was thinking about that with regards to the holdovers, actually. Because I I kind of thought one thing that I, I really that I think really mitigates that is that um, for all this kid's privilege, the main kid that we see in the film, um, for all this kid's privilege, he's abandoned by his parents. Yes. You know? or, well, it, he's not abandoned by his father. His father has... Um, mental issues and he wants to connect with him he's abandoned by his mother who's gone off with some other guy and leaves him at school and that's the thing about boarding school to some extent as well is you you're sending your child off that's gotta fucking hurt I think that's maybe why like you know, kind of that, that kind of Tory generation the You're governmental not- generation like I'm not saying I like really feel for them but when you send your kid off to a boarding school and say I'll meet you when you graduate you fucking have your heart broken by your parents you know, they're broken people. And I kind of feel for that kid in that film because he, he's being abandoned by his parents at Christmas. Yeah, you know? well, so um, I think that's, I'm not yeah. that sympathetic. I don't feel for his parents. I feel for him. He's a kid. Uh, yeah, I kind of... A bit more generosity in your life. It's Christmas, Jose. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, this film... Maybe I'll go back and forth on... Uh, all of us strangers, because like I say, throughout the film, my experience is one of really feeling everything that the film wants me to feel, although maybe not with the level of intensity that it wants me to feel it. But, you know, I don't I don't share so much of the backgrounds of these characters. I think it obviously speaks to someone who does much more strongly. Um, but I really felt it. And I was I was really impressed with how it was moving and how it was 
kind of you know like I say getting certain things past me that it otherwise might not you know that those those kind of semi-dream ghost sequences um and then as soon as I come out of the film maybe because the ending is this reveal of um that so much of what you've seen is is, is not what you thought I, I suddenly started to feel more mixed and then in conversation the film is you know uplifted once mm. again so maybe I'll always sort of maybe be going slightly going back and forth on it but I think it's a really bold story to be telling it's a really remarkable achievement mm, it's very very moving so we recommend uh, everyone see it mm. um, thank you very much for listening we are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on Apple Podcasts Audible Google Podcasts Spotify SoundCloud and YouTube on social media we're on Facebook and Twitter uh, at eavesdrop movies and blue sky eavesdropping.bsky.social and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com bye 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 <laughs>